0: Welcome to the Great Awakening. I'm your host, Josh Dawes. So often in our debates about policies surrounding uh, family structure, it's really easy for those to become all about the adults um, involved in those situations. You know, the adults' desires and wants, and too often the the children uh, are kind of um, pushed out of those conversations. And that what's best for the children is made subservient to uh, what the adults in their lives uh, desire. And my guest today is uh, someone who uh, has started an organization that really seeks to reframe those debates to not, um, not forget and, and really to center those debates on what's best for the children. Uh, my guest is Katie Faust. She has started an organization called Them Before Us. She's also written a book uh, with that same name, uh, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. I saw her speak at NatCon a few weeks ago, um, video online, uh, really great speech, um, both in content. It was very helpful um, reframing of the issues like talked about, but just a phenomenal um, delivery um, of the, of the talk. It was just a fine example of, uh, that style of rhetoric done well. And so I asked Katie to come on the show and, um, sat down with her earlier this week and had a great conversation. So I I really think you're going to enjoy this. So let's jump right into that right now. Hey Katie, thanks for joining me on the show.
1: Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, so you were not on my radar until NatCon. I'd, I'd hoped to attend and couldn't make it work with my work schedule, but I've been watching a lot of the talks um, once they appeared online. And yours, what has stood out is you're by far one of the best uh, that I've seen um, from that conference. Uh, you spoke on um, what is a child, where you you uh, kind of went back to fundamentals, like. Okay. We've had some cultural losses. Let's, let's regroup, uh, you know, drawing from uh, Vince Lombardi's, you know, this is a football talk. Um, You, uh, you, let's get back to basics. What is, uh, this is a child. Uh, Can you (laughs) help us unpack that? What, what is a child and why do we need a new children's rights uh, movement?
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, this, it was a successful speech and a successful presentation. Um, simply because this is the right way to frame all of these marriage and family issues, and yet so few people have done it. So um, it's very simple, right? You begin with the child. Who are they? What do they need? Where do they come from? Um, What statistically um, do we know about their thriving and the conditions that can lead to their flourishing, right? So the idea is you start with the child and then you work your way out. So kind of the, the basics of that is, Um, you know, a child is created when the gametes of one man and one woman come together to fuse and create a distinct, new, never before seen human individual. Um, And then those two adults who contributed the sperm and the egg are statistically the two adults who are the most likely to ensure that that child is safe and loved, right? And that Um, While there are negligent biological parents, overwhelmingly, that biological connection, that genetic connection, creates a level of protectiveness, connectedness, and investment that we have not been able to replicate throughout um, other family structures that other adults um, are able to provide for that child. Um, In addition, those two adults also provide something that children crave, and that is their biological identity. Um, And that we can look at adoptees or we can look at children created through third party reproduction arrangements, sperm donation, egg donation, surrogacy, and see that um, children long to know the identity and have a relationship with the two people responsible for their existence. And being especially intentionally severed from that through commercial processes massively destabilizes a child's identity and leads to elevated risks of substance abuse, um, of mistrust within the household, um, of psychological problems. Um, So those two adults grant children something that they need and that is the answer, who am I, right? They don't know who am I unless they know whose am I. And third, the other reason why um, those two adults who created the child are so critical is that if the child is raised by both of those biological parents, They will benefit from the perfect gender balance in the home, and men provide distinct benefits to child rearing, and women provide distinct benefits to child rearing um, in the complementary ways that they approach the children in their life. Um, And not only that, not only is it a developmental benefit to having mother and father, but it actually satisfies something that children instinctively long for, and that is male love And female love. Children don't just need love in the abstract. They seek maternal love and paternal love. And so, in that speech, and throughout most of our work at Them Before Us, um, which is the nonprofit that I run that advocates for children's rights to their mother and father, we spend a lot of time and we give a lot of space to kids who are raised without their mother or father. So, in that speech, I quoted, Two adults who had been raised by two moms or two dads, talking about the father hunger and the mother hunger that they experienced, even though they were well loved by two dads or two moms, that kids instinctually crave the love of a man and a woman. And if that's not present in their home, they will seek it out sometimes in unhealthy or dangerous ways, um, if they're not getting it, you know, within the four walls of where they're being raised. So when you look at the reality that children are statistically the most likely to be safe and loved when raised by their own mother and father, when you look at the fact that only those two adults grant children their biological identity, when you look at the massive, the mountain of studies that we have showing the complementary benefits of mothering and fathering, and when you look at the stories of the kids themselves who are raised without one or both and the hunger and the loss that they experience, What you have is the reality that this is a child. And these realities of childhood, they don't change based on cultural opinions and phrase catchphrases like love makes a family. They don't change when Supreme Court justices redefine marriage. They don't change when we figure out new ways to create babies in laboratories. Children are going to be children, regardless of the technological cultural and legal modifications that adults make to their world. So the reality is we can either accept and respect who children are and what they need, or we are going to violate their rights and and diminish their worth. So like those are the two options. So that's it, like if we begin with the basics and understand the basics of what children are, that actually gives you the answer to what the definition of marriage is. When when is divorce permissible? Should or should we not use third party reproductive technologies? Should we promote same sex parenting? What is the purpose of adoption? Um, should we legalize polygamy? Is cohabitation the same thing as marriage? If you understand what a child is, you get all of the answers to all the marriage and family questions.
0: Oh, that's uh, that's great. There's a lot there. I want to kind of unpack some of it. Uh slowly. Um, I just finished your book this morning where you, you lay out the case in each one of those those areas that you talked about. But you begin by um, really defining what what is a human right, which I thought was really helpful. Because I'll be honest, when I heard we need a children's rights campaign, I'm automatically flashing back to the 1990s with Linda Ellerbee on Nickelodeon, you know, saying children need a right to vote. And you know, seeing how the left has manipulated children's rights to smuggle in a whole bunch of things that we wouldn't stand for, um, what how should we think about rights?
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, um, I often get pushed back from conservatives about this because the left has so adulterated and corrupted the term rights, um, especially children's rights. Like that term specifically needs to be Mm -hmm. redeemed. You know, I just looked at the report from the Southern Poverty Law Center that has a whole section on the importance of children's rights. And it really is just adult ideology smuggled in under the guise of defending children. So that term uh, needs to be redeemed. And so what we do in the book is we argue for children's natural rights, um, a right that can be discovered through natural law, Processes and philosophy, right? This is the same foundation that we use to advocate for children's natural right to life. Um, And natural rights don't change depending on cultural temperatures or um, even whether or not something is considered a civil right or a legal right. I mean, this is the basis on which Martin Luther King Jr. argued for the equality of all people. Um, It is a natural right, whether or not the government recognizes it. And so that is the basis on which we make our case for children's right to their mother and father. And um you know we my, my co-author Stacy and I are are lay people, we are not natural lawyers. Um and we did the best that we could to sort of distill this into something that was digestible for the common man. Um and we have in chapter 1 the three rules that make it a right test um to figure out there's all there's all this rights talk like I have a right to birth control and I have a right to housing and um, children have a right to have to acquire testosterone at Planned Parenthood, even with their par- without their parents' knowledge, right? Like everything that adults really, really want has been deemed a right. And so we spend some time in chapter one talking about what does make something a natural right. And we've got basically three criteria for that. Number one, it existed pre-government, right? A natural law is based on the human person, not based on government invention. Um, number two is nobody has to provide it for you. It's something that you just automatically have. And number three, everyone has it in equal measure, right? So housing is not a right because you have a right to a dorm room or do you have a right to Mar-a-Lago? Like, you know what I mean? Like it can, if it can vary in degrees or proportion, it's not a natural right. So when you look at that criteria, you see that things like freedom of speech, the ability to defend yourself. Your right to life and your right to your mother and father all meet those criteria. Uh, So that's just kind of a helpful little template if you want to evaluate whether or not something is a natural right. And I'm not saying we caught it all. I'm just saying that it's a helpful way to distinguish is this really a right or is this something that someone's just using to um, add weight to their argument?
0: Yeah, no, I think it's an incredibly helpful heuristic for thinking through that um and very different than kind of the modern conception of of civil rights which like you said is generally whatever an adult <laughs> desires you know becomes a right under um this kind of broader concept of civil rights um you walk through again in the book you walk through how that um how we need to rethink uh, several different issues um in light of a children's rights to their biological mom and dad. Um, I think the, the first, uh, one you tackle in the book is, is divorce. And you said something in that chapter that was really struck with me. Um, cause my wife, uh, went through, uh, a, a divorce of her parents, uh, when she was 16 and just a really hard time that was, you know, life, you know, one of those kind of, you know, moments, uh, y- y- Things that you, you go through world, that
1: right. Your yeah, whole world changes.
0: Whole world changes. And then she's still still dealing with the the wounds from that event. And um you, you said it in, in in that chapter, you said that divorce, um, I'm gonna butcher it, but you said something like the divorce takes uh shifts the problems of the parents and hands them to the kid and say, here, you deal with it. And that, that was, that's so resonated with me because I've seen that in my wife's life. How should we be thinking about divorce and and what can we do about it now that no fault divorce is out of the, you know?
1: Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, And just to back up one step, um, why is it that marriage is a matter of justice for children? It is because it is the only relationship, the only adult arrangement that unites the two people to whom children have a natural right for life every day. And what does divorce do? It will cut off a child from at least, in the best case scenario, 50% of mom and dad every day. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's 50% less than what they need because they need 100% of mom and 100% of dad every day, all day, all their life um and so there are cases where divorce is permissible and we used to acknowledge that in civil law we used to say that if you were at fault if you were found to be at fault if you were violating your marriage vows because you were abusive because you committed adultery because of addiction or abandonment um that those were causes that justified the massive impact that divorce was going to inflict on the children and the innocent spouse and in those cases The court and society would side with the faithful spouse, the one that was seeking to hold the marriage together. They would reward them with things like social acceptance and custody and the house and all of that. Right. And so it actually reinforced good behavior. It held the standard high. It actually penalized adults who were trying to um, who had a low, um, low behavioral standards, maybe for themselves when it came to um, fidelity or irresponsible behavior or whatever that was. Right. So that. I know that people um you know gripe about that system. The reason why we changed it is because you had couples that were unhappy in their marriage that said, Well, this is horrible. We're gonna have to lie. We're gonna have to say this person committed adultery if I want to get out of this marriage. Um and so, but what we've done with the no-fault divorce system is we have done what you have said. We have taken these often legitimate struggles, right? Like when I'm not doing children's rights activism, um, I am in my husband's office counseling people going through struggling marriages. Like this is hard work. I mean, the porn addiction that people are dealing with or the childhood baggage or the communication problems or the way that you've kind of grown apart as you have aged and changed over the last 13 years of your marriage or whatever it is, these are not small problems that adults are facing. But when they fail to resolve them, when they fail to say, okay, I'm gonna do the hard work or we're gonna do the hard work to change this, really what they're saying is, This cross that we're carrying is too heavy for us. Here, kids, you take it instead. Because what we detail in the book is the massive toll that divorce takes on a child's physical health, mental health, emotional health, academic health, and relational health. Like you're saddling children with lifelong burden that many of them probably, like your wife, would say, I figured it out. I got over it. I'm working through it right? But it genuinely burdened her in all of these areas. And so the first issue that we got wrong on this as conservatives, as Christians, um, as Republicans, is we did not give the attention to divorce that it deserved. Divorce was the original redefinition of marriage. Divorce is the reason why, one of the biggest reasons why, family life in America is in shambles today. It's not because of the gays. It's because of divorce. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that's so true. And it, it led directly to Obergefell and the redefinition of marriage. Because if marriage is just a thing that you can fall in and out of, uh, you know, according to your desires, and it's reframed in terms of the parent's happiness, Right. why should you keep that from anyone? Yeah, Um, that's
1: exactly right. We talk about that a lot, that divorce was the original redefinition of marriage, right? Divorce, like marriage used to be the most child, and it still is, the most child-friendly institution the world has ever known. This is the place where children are most likely to have all their needs met, most safe and secure and stable and all of that. And divorce said, no, Really, marriage is just a vehicle for adult fulfillment, right? When you Mm. stop being happy, it can stop being a marriage. And so, gays and lesbians said, Well, if this is just about making me happy, well, another man makes me happy or another woman makes me happy. Um, If it's not about kids, which divorce, no fault divorce, obviously said it's not about kids, and it's just about adults, well, this is how marriage is going to serve me. So, that adult centric mindset is actually the thread that kind of ties all these issues together is all of these issues, all of these technologies ultimately is about adult fulfillment and adult satisfaction to the detriment of children.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And one of the things I love that you hit so often in, in your book is that being an adult means we make hard decisions for the sake of kids. And yeah. and so much of our culture today is causing children to make sacrifices for the adult's happiness.
1: That's Yeah, that's right. So if the common thread in all of the problems is, is obsessive focus on adult desire, the common response is adults accepting hardship for children, regardless of the issue, right? Regardless of whether it's the adults in the struggling marriage, the adults struggling with infertility, the adults struggling with same-sex attraction, the adults struggling with unwanted singleness, like all of those areas include and involve genuine burden and genuine mm-hmm. struggle for the adults, right? But the solution cannot be, I'm going to burden a child mm-hmm. so that I can have what I want. The solution must be, I will accept hardship so the children can have what they need. Mm-hmm. So we, even though we tackle a lot of different issues, the underlying problem and the underlying solution is the same in all of them.
0: And I think that's that's where I, I really hope and pray that Christians in the church will, will read your book and really turn that lens. I I love it when a book will, um, cause me to, you know, I think I'm reading a book about these issues that are outside my sphere. Um, but then really cause me to examine my own life. And I think that's, that's one thing your book does really well with that, that language of adults doing hard things, because so many of these issues that we would point our finger at and say, these are problems in society started in the church years before when we started looking the other way on on divorce or justifying it or, you know, sacrificing our kids for a fulfilling career, you know, so many different areas that, you know, I think we can look inward and, and be introspective to see how are we failing on this account as well. Yeah,
1: I, there's a lot of people that'll say, I want to have you on my show to talk about, you know, gay men creating children through surrogates. And I'm like, yeah, we'll talk about that, but we're going to talk about everything too. Because that is a horrifying, never before seen man, like manifestation in our species of intentionally creating a motherless child. Like our species makes it very difficult to have a motherless baby, right? And so what is going on right now with surrogacy um, and procuring these children Creating, manufacturing, designing, discarding, um, purchasing, trafficking these children is horrifying. But the the places, the cultural, legal, and technological changes that got us there uh, are things that all of us have participated in, mm. and so we have to look at the broader issue. And like you said, uh, a lot of churches, oftentimes in the name of love, tolerance, or even just focusing on the gospel has forsaken talking about these critical issues um, because, because it's unpopular, you know, mm-hmm. it's unpopular with the world. You're going to trigger them, but there's so much compromising happening in the church, right. That you're yeah. going to send the people in your congregation too.
0: Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's talk about surrogacy that, um, you know, for our listeners who may not be up on celebrity gossip, but <laughs> you know what that is, what, What is surrogacy and um, why is it such a problem?
1: Um, So surrogacy is unfortunately the source of a lot of moral confusion, um, even among conservatives, even among pro-lifers, even among Christians. Um, And that is a problem. We need to get this right and we need to figure it out right now because it's only getting worse. Um, So a few things to know about surrogacy. Um, Surrogacy always involves IVF right, in vitro fertilization, that is making babies in laboratories, Uh, those babies will die. Almost all of them. Only 7% of babies created through IVF will be born alive. Most of them will die in the process or spend their entire life in a freezer or be deemed non-viable or the wrong sex or won't make the grade and they'll be discarded. The unwanted surplus embryos will be donated to research to be experimented on. Um, many of them won't survive the thaw. Many of them won't survive the transfer. even if they do survive the transfer, especially surrogate babies will be subject to um, contractual lines that insist on selective reduction, that is abortion um between twelve and twenty weeks. And the result is very few babies that are created through IVF are actually going to be born alive. And so this is not pro-life technology. This is not pro-child technology. This is about creating, disposable, designer, babies, for whoever is able to pay the price. So that's always a part of surrogacy. So first of all, figure out what's going on with IVF and then apply it to every adult. The gay people down the street, the sweet heterosexual Christian couple in your church that's struggling with infertility, and insist that nobody, nobody, make children sacrifice their right to life so that you can have what you want. And that is something that has lost me a lot of friends. And that is the statement that gets people walking out of my speeches when when I'm at conferences is, how dare you say that I can't use IVF? And I'm saying, you have to use these technologies in ways that don't violate any child's right to life. And if you even try, you will be fighting against your, your doctors. You'll be fighting against the industry. You'll be fighting against your pocketbook because they know how to make some money, right? And they are not going to allow you. To hold on to your pro life convictions easily as you go through this process. So there's IVF, which is always a part of surrogacy. So now let's talk about what surrogacy really is. What surrogacy does is it splices what should be one woman mother into three optional and purchasable women. So the first one is the genetic mother, right? Who is the egg donor. And I say donor because this is not a benevolent nonprofit. Um, nobody is donating anything here. People are selling their eggs and purchasing eggs. Right There's a marketplace for eggs. You can Google egg donor catalog, and you can see that you can filter those results based on the race, based on the education level, based on how many eggs are available. This is a marketplace where you are purchasing a child's genetic mother, a woman that they will very likely go to sleep thinking about and fantasizing about if they're like pretty much every other child created through sperm or egg donation. So first is the genetic mother. The second one is the birth mother, the woman who's going to rent her womb for nine and a half months, the woman to whom this baby is going to bond um, and the one whose body and smell and voice will comfort that child on the day that they are born. And then the third one is the social mother, the woman who is going to be in the child's life every day, kissing their boo-boos, Um, honing their fine motor skills through cutting or tying their shoes or whatever it is, all the things that mothers naturally do. The woman who has higher oxytocin levels um, and softer skin that babies prefer when it comes to comfort. Um, And so what surrogacy does is it says, here's the three moms, which one do you need? Which one do you not have? Which one do you need to purchase? Um, Do you need to purchase the egg, but you've got the, the, the womb or, and you're the social mother, great. Or do you want to provide the egg, but you don't have the womb, and then you're going to go home, and you're going to be the social mother? Or do you need to purchase the egg and the womb, and you're just going to forsake the social mother altogether, and the baby's going to grow up without a mom in the home, right? So surrogacy allows for you to sort of mix and match which moms you need and purchase the ones that you don't have. But the problem is the loss of any of these three women is going to impact children it is going to inflict a lifelong loss on them and if these three women are not found to be in the same woman you're asking children to sacrifice something they have a natural right to something that they need now in some cases the child loses their birth mother um, through circumstances where maybe the mother relinquishes them at adopt in adoption or they have to be removed from the household or something like that but we Universally recognize that as a tragedy and we mourn. And adoptive parents like me are trained and coached um, to know that we need to mourn and grieve with our child and help them understand the kind of loss that they've experienced as they grow. But surrogacy inflicts this loss intentionally and for profit and calls it progress. So, surrogacy is not something, there's no circumstance where surrogacy is neutral from a children's rights standpoint. It always insists that children lose something that they need and they have a right to, so that adults can have what they want.
0: That's um, yeah, that's, it's just crazy. I, I liked how you compared it to adoption. Cause it, I, I think that's the one thing I would want people to hear loud and clear from this conversation is that there is no <laughs> there is no um shame in being adopted or uh towards adoptive parents um and and the way you, I think you described it in the book is that this um surrogacy is intentionally creating those wounds whereas adoption is intending to heal those wounds. Yeah.
1: Um, we spend a lot of time on adoption Um, this idea that biology matters in the parent-child relationship, which it does, we spend all of chapter two talking about the benefits, advantages um, that being raised by your biological parents affords children. Um, And that triggers the left because it wrecks their modern family notion, right? If biology matters in the parent-child relationship, all forms of modern family are going to diminish child outcomes, which they do. But on the right, saying biology matters triggers adoptive parents um, and pro-lifers who have advanced adoption as a problem-free solution to unwanted pregnancies. Um, And so we spend quite a bit of time, we have an entire chapter on adoption, understanding a child-centric perspective of adoption and contrasting adoption and reproductive technologies. Because a lot of people think, well, reproductive technologies are just like adoption right both in both cases kids are being raised apart from a biological parent but from a children's rights perspective they are exactly the opposite mm-hmm. right adoption is a child centric institution centered around the well-being of kids reproductive technologies are a marketplace centered around the desires of adults in adoption the adults do hard thing for the kids and that is why it is a pro child um institution. In reproductive technologies, the kids are forced to do hard things for adults. And that is why it does not get the them before us seal of approval. So we've got answers for you. Um, Adoption when it's properly understood is a critical aspect of protecting the rights and well-being of kids. And it can never, ever be confused with reproductive technologies.
0: Can you talk a little, uh, you you tell some great stories. Um, it's one of the great things about your book is there's so many stories from kids who have grown up in these, you know, different family structures, um, feeling those, those longings for a biological mother and father. Um, some of the most harrowing, I think, stories were from, um, the children of, uh, donors, um, and just that feeling they feel that they, they can't even talk about it with the people that are raising them. Can you share some of what you've found in your research there?
1: Yeah. We've always had like the pro family, traditional marriage side of the uh, aisle has always had the best research. We've always had the best statistics. We've always had natural law. We've even had the five major religions of the world on our side What we lose. We constantly lose because the other side humanizes their arguments, right? The other side tells the better story. So one of the main things we wanted to do in the book was we wanted to give you the real stories, the real faces, the real wounds, the real memories of kids who grew up in these modern families uh, so that you could look them in the face and say, well, you should be happy because your parents are happy or you should just be grateful to be alive because without these technologies, you'd be dead. And love makes a, fa- why doesn't love make a family kid? Don't, didn't you hear love makes a family? So you should be happy because you were loved. So we let you look at their lives um, and the stories that they've shared. Um, and yeah, the donor conceived kids who were so loved and wanted, right? Who were so loved and wanted that their parents paid so much money to get them. How could you not be loved if your parents spent $12,000 creating you or hundred thousand dollars creating you or $75 purchasing you from your genetic father? Right? These people had to work even harder to have their kids, so you should be happy. And yet they're not. Right, Overwhelmingly, these kids struggle with what um, sociologists call genealogical bewilderment, not understanding who they look like and where they get their features from. And some of them talk about how they couldn't even look in a mirror you know, because they felt like they were looking at a stranger. Um, many of them struggle with feelings of commodification as if they were purchased and designed because they were purchased and designed. And that has an impact on your self-esteem and, and how you you know conceive of yourself. Um, they spend a lot of time, many of them spend a lot of time fantasizing about their missing parent and that often will push them towards seeking out the identity of this donor, this person that the world says, that's just a stranger to you. Your parents are the ones who raised you. And yet overwhelmingly these kids say, nope, that is half of who I am. Many of them will say, that is not a donor. That is my father. That's not a sperm donor. That is my father. I deserve to know my father. I want to know who my father is. Many of them, when they do take that 23andMe test, discover, I thought I was an only child, but I have 52 half siblings. And then the desire to know all of them and not even know if that's there is because every couple months there's a new result of a new half-sibling that they didn't know existed. Um, A lot of them are concerned that um, this process of creating them involved eugenics, which it did, right? You're grading and selecting um, what kind of gametes, attributes, characteristics, and discarding, right? Especially when it comes to multiple embryos, you always have to make decisions about which embryos are going to be implanted, which are going to be discarded, which are going to be frozen, which are going to be donated to research. Um, and so this is not um, an, a, the idea of just welcoming life. It is designing new life. It is discarding new life. And the kids who emerged from these processes, um, who were the lucky ones, they look back and they say, that feels a little more like a science experiment than it does like the creation of children. So. You really can't, I mean, all of chapter seven is devoted to children created through sperm and egg donation, children who were probably raised by at least one biological parent, Um, children who didn't lose their birth mother. They only lost one genetic parent. And These kids aren't doing well. They're not doing well. Right. Overwhelmingly, they are disproportionately affected by um, struggles, identity struggles, um, heightened issues of depression or um, bewilderment about who they are um, and mistrust of their parents, right? Because if they are going to talk about their frustrations or their concerns about commodification or their missing parent, they are talking to the person that commodified them. They are talking to the person that chose for their genetic parent to be cut out of their life. Um, and that increases the psychological burden on these kids,
0: yeah. and and so many of them, you know especially you know uh, being raised by same-sex parents feel that, um, cultural pressure that this is something I'm, I should be celebrating. And if I express any, uh, discomfort or, you know, any of this father longing with two moms, then I'm suddenly now a right wing bigot. And, you know, there's, it, it, there's so much, um, man to unpack with that. Um,
1: yeah, uh, we, we spend a little time in chapter four talking about how Um, you know, Justice Kennedy passed or, you know, in his opinion on a burger fell, he said, we have to do this for the kids, for the kids of same, you know, with same sex parents. But we argue in the book and we quote the stories of kids with two moms, uh, especially who we actually say, this is not a way to help kids with same sex parents. This is actually a way to gaslight kids with same sex parents, because these kids like, you can't legislate away their longing for their father, right? Their missing parent. Kids, the human children want to know the two people responsible for their existence. They long to be loved by a man and a woman. And so, when you remove all legal markers and now remove all cultural markers saying that kids should have a mom and dad, have a right to a mom and dad, need a mom and dad, those kids will still experience those feelings of mother hunger or father hunger or genealogical bewilderment. And The problem is they'll look at their outside world and the outside world says, you don't need those things. You shouldn't want those things. And so then when they feel those things, they feel massive amounts of guilt and confusion going, okay, the world says that I don't need a dad. I shouldn't want a dad. It's bigoted to want a dad. And yet I really, really want a dad. So there must be something wrong with me. So that's what I mean. Like we will either recognize the reality of who kids are and what they need, or we're going to victimize them. And we victimized them when we redefined marriage.
0: Yeah. A few episodes ago, I had on Louise Perry, uh, who's written The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Phenomenal. Excellent book. I haven't Uh,
1: read it, but I've listened to like all her podcasts. I'm like, stick it in my veins, girl.
0: Oh, I know. (laughs) know, It's phenomenal. She has this, um, she says, you know, we keep crashing into, you know, the limitations of the sexual revolution. And instead of coming to the conclusion that there's we may have gotten this wrong it's like we just hit that freedom lever again we we just need more of it and i think that we're seeing that with the this kind of modern family idea you know if we keep trying it long enough those you know traditions those things that have been ingrained in us by you know an oppressive society will just evaporate and go away eventually and that's just i don't think that's how we were wired um
1: yeah, your ideology, your political goals, they don't change who children are. Children mm-hmm. are going to be this. And, you know, you can keep repeating. I mean, I'm on Twitter this morning arguing with a guy. Kids just need love. It doesn't matter. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you can say that as long as you want. You know, the reality of who children are does not change. And good research is always going to verify reality. Right.
0: Yep. All right. So I want I do want to ask you about that because these are not easy conversations to have considering how it steps on so many toes, right, left, and center. Um, How, what advice do you have for Christians in having these conversations? You know, you're sitting in small group and a couple's talking about, you know, their fertility struggles and they're thinking about IVF. You know, it's much easier just to stay quiet and just, you know, maybe quietly pray for them to choose something different. How, 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 what advice do you have for stepping in to those difficult conversations?
1: Well, number one, I think you should be an expert. I wouldn't try to go into those conversations without having a pretty strong command of what's involved with all of these things. Like I wouldn't necessarily go into a conversation with a friend of mine who's experiencing same sex attraction and desperately wants to be a father and probably would be a really fantastic father um, without the stories of kids. Right. Without talking about how biology matters in the parent-child relationship, without bringing into that aspect, this idea, this reality that kids actually long to know both of the people responsible for their existence. Right. So first of all, I would make sure that you are the expert um, because you don't want to just come in and dump. You know, you're not the expert. So you can dump everything in there. You have to become the expert so that you can select Exactly, which aspect of reality or the facts or the research or the story or whatever it is is exactly right for that moment. Um, and for Christians, I would say this is critical because you are actually charged with child protection. Like we have a God who has 39 explicit verses in the Old Testament about protecting the fatherless, right? The fatherless is a vulnerable population that deserved special protection and actual laws to insist that they not be victimized. When we get questions about marriage and family wrong, um, we're actually victimizing children because marriage, right? Why is it the father less who are so vulnerable because they are outside of that protective umbrella of a married mom and dad. And so, first of all, compromising on God's design for sex and marriage will victimize kids. So don't do it. Christians, don't do it. And read this book. and. You probably know what the Bible says, read this book. And you will be like, now I know why what God says is so good. Now I know why God's design and insistence on sex within heterosexual marriage for life is so critical to child protection. Um, So Christians don't compromise, become an expert. And then I would say, we need to take a um, a page from the pro-life playbook because I think pro-lifers have figured out how to do this very well, which is you empathize, right? You get in and you are willing to help and support women in unplanned pregnancies, women who have gotten that difficult diagnosis. Um, and you say, oh my gosh, this must be so hard. Let me know what I can do for you. I'll be, I will be—I can do free babysitting. I can get you some diapers. Um, let me throw a shower for you at my church. Um, I can, you know, Let me connect you some parenting classes. Like, how can I support you? But the bright line is you cannot violate this child's right to life. We need to take that same empathy into all of these other conversations about people struggling with fertility. Our friends who are dealing with same-sex attraction, our friends in struggling marriages, right? The 40-something career woman who would be an amazing mom but has not met Mr. Right. We bring our empathy, our friendship, our connection to those adults. And then we say, but however you are struggling, it can never justify violating children's right, violating their right to life, violating their right to a mother and father. Um, We can and should be empathetic. The people that on which our friends who are struggling can lean, but child protection is a critical part of the Christian life. And the message needs to be your struggles do not justify burdening children. Um, in ways that will harm them
0: for life. That's good. Now you, you are a Christian, you, your husband is a Baptist pastor, I believe. Um, And yet there is no scripture in your book whatsoever. Uh, Instead, you make all of your arguments from a natural law perspective. Why is it important to do that? Why, why can't we just say, well, God made them you know, Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve that settles it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Right. Because like scripture is my authority. It is my ultimate authority is the thing that I, they, I hit up for guidance tells me what I should do with my life gives me purpose. It is the revelation of God. It is my ultimate authority, but it is not an authority that is recognized by my unbelieving neighbor. They have to live under a universal common authority. um, And that is the authority of natural law that is the authority of the natural world. And so the good news is that God's word and God's word, God's word and God's world have the same author. And so these two will never contradict, but we argue based on God's world, right? These natural realities under which all of us must bend, right? Even though our laws don't recognize them, our culture doesn't, right? Those are unbending realities what children are, what they need, where they come from, who men and women are, um, their unity and what they provide to kids, those realities will not change. They will be verified by scripture, right? But these are the unbending realities under which everybody must submit. So we are appealing to a universal authority um, rather than the revealed authority. Um, And it is an argument that you really can't argue against. Um, You can certainly call people bigots, you can call them haters, um, but when you actually engage in a natural law argument, and and then you know you remove the objection of this is just about your religion, and it's amazing. Like on Twitter, even just this morning, you know, I'm arguing with somebody on Twitter, and they're like, "Oh, these religious bigots are always bringing their you know morality," and I'm like, "I have not made a religious argument here," and so it actually removes all of the major objections that we have all received for so long. Um, the other thing that it does is it insists that all adults bend that when you look at the natural world, what you're getting is, you're not just saying that this is for Christians. This is for everybody, right? This is a moral system that is going to apply to everybody because we're all parts of the human race. This is not a Christian idea, even though it's validated by the Christian God and the Christian worldview. This is a human idea, right? This is going to apply to Hindus and Jews and Muslims. You know, the Somali boy that does not have a dad is lying awake at night wondering where he is, just like the kid in Georgia. Is lying awake at night wondering where their dad is, right? These are realities that are grounded in the human experience, and so we make our argument based on those universal human realities. Um, and with the nice side, it's got the nice side benefit of reinforcing every single thing that the Bible says.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think you make excellent argument in there. Um, I wish I had had uh, that um, those arguments back when Obergefell was decided because. Found myself in conversations like I don't know how to argue this without just saying the Bible says, yeah. and so I think um, for that reason it it's incredibly helpful, and um, I hope uh, a lot of Christians read that and non Christians because you make your argument is not just tailored for Christians. So um, I yeah. do thank you for the work you, you're doing.
1: My publisher is like, well let's let's put this under a Christian imprint, and I'm like, no, I, I mean this is not a Christian book this is a book about social science, really, that's what it is. Um, And so I I rejected the suggestion that it be a Christian book. Amazingly, you know, not amazingly, but Christians have been so interested in it, which I love, you know, most of the opportunities that we have to speak um, are Christians who are like, I knew that God wasn't a bigot, I just knew it. Um, But even a lot of Christians are saying, man, maybe God God is like an anti-gay hater, you know, or no, he's not, right? That that, um, I'm grateful that the moral voice that is emerging on many of these topics is from Christians who finally feel like they understand um, how their faith informs all of these different issues um, because we have elucidated the why behind what God says.
0: Yep. Well, I thank you for the work you're doing. It's uh, incredibly incredibly encouraging to me to, um, to learn about your organization and, and what you're doing. And I hope uh, a lot of people read this book. Um, before I let you go, I do like to end each episode with one question. Uh, it's a lot that we could be blackpilled on. It's a lot of bad things in the world. You know, spend any time on Twitter, you're going to get <laughs> discouraged to some degree. Uh, what is giving you hope right now?
1: So, um, I'm in Seattle, and um, there has been an exodus from Seattle by Christians. Christians have left Seattle um, at minimum for the eastern side of the state, but usually for Idaho or Texas or Florida. Um, And I understand, um, but it means that there's not a lot of us here. But the ones that are here are serious. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the ones that have decided to stay. Um, are being refined and purified Um, and they are training up their children. You know, my Sunday school class, my Christian worldview Sunday school class is filled with kids who are, who know that they have got to be experts on all of these different topics, every worldview topic, um, because they are outflanked everywhere they go. And so the Christians here are very serious about their own witness, about their own doctrine, about their own children being trained Um, And I just think that if that is going to be the trend among Christians uh, that, you know, you've got four kids, I've got four kids, like Christians and conservatives in general have been outbreeding uh, people on the other side for a long time, but we have not been discipling our kids the way we, you know, we've, we've created the children and then we've allowed the media or the schools or the left to raise our children. And I think that that's changing. I think that because the other side has gone so insane, that Christians, especially Christian parents, have figured out that they have to get very serious about training and discipling their kids, Um, that the church has to become what it should always have been, which is open-hearted and empathetic and welcoming of people who may disagree, but holding fast and standing firm and giving a robust articulation of God's design, especially for the human person, which seems to be um, the place where all of these cultural, ideological lies are crashing against Christian doctrine today. And so what I feel like is happening is, even though the, the furnace has been heated to seven times the normal temperature, I feel like it is having a purifying, fortifying, strengthening impact on the parents in my world and therefore the kids in my world. And these kids um, are armed in a way that I don't think the kids were the Christian kids. I didn't grow up as a Christian, but my Christian friends, I don't think felt as equipped to be able to critique culture like my kids and my friends' kids are. Because we as parents have gotten much more serious about instilling Christian convictions, not just Bible verses, which I love, but an entire Christian worldview to our kids. Um, and those kids are going to be able to offer something to the world that the the kids who have been steeped in ideology are not going to be able to offer, right? They're going to have a coherent, um, effective, fruitful witness. Um, and that gives me hope because I'm watching these kids contend for the faith, um, contend for right, even though they are in a city where they are absolutely surrounded and there's there's no allies here, right? It's them and their God and their friends from church and their parents. Um, and, and, and those kids are strong. So I, I guess that's it. Like, that's what gives me hope.
0: That's great. Well, thank you so much, Katie. I have so enjoyed this conversation. Uh, where can people find you?
1: You can go to thembeforeus.com, go down to the bottom and subscribe to our newsletter. We have so much going on, (laughs) so much going on. Um, You should be a part of it. You should stay on top of it. You should get the book and become an expert because there is nobody that is going to do this, right? Our politicians, entertainment, education, institutional capture, even among researchers is rampant. Like it is ordinary adults that are going to have to take up the mantle of defending children. Um, And it needs to be you. So, you know, stay connected to us so that we can, you know, fight these giants together.
0: Excellent. Well, we will definitely send people uh, that way. And I'll have links in the show notes uh, to where they can get your book and uh, uh, subscribe to your newsletter. Um, Thanks again, Katie. I have so enjoyed this. Thanks, Josh. That's our show for today. Big thanks to Katie Faust for joining me for this conversation. If you'd like to find out more about her organization, you can head to thembeforeus.com. Um, there's also a, will be a link in the show notes where you can purchase her book, I finished it earlier this week. I highly recommend it. Uh, I'll also place a link to her, um, her talk that she gave at NatCon as well. And I highly, if you do nothing else, highly recommend you check that out. It's just an excellent, um, talk that I think you'll, um, get a lot out of. If you're enjoying the show, please um, share it with your friends. I think these are important conversations to be having amongst Christians and those of us on the right who are concerned about where society is headed and um definitely want to be a uh, resource for how to have these conversations, how to um, you know do it in a way that is not uh, inherently you know divisive or nasty but is a uh, reasonable and you know, seeks to speak with clarity, um, some hard things that, you know, are not easy to talk about. So hopefully you're uh, enjoying the show. Uh, If you're listening um, um, via podcast, ratings and reviews over at Apple Podcasts are extremely helpful for increasing the reach of the show. If you are watching on YouTube, go ahead and hit like and subscribe so you don't miss future content. Uh, As always, I so appreciate you watching and listening to the show. I will see you soon.